Good evening, everyone. Um, let's begin. I'm anticipating that some others will join as we go forward. Um, we are blessed um, to have Reverend Dr. Gary Mason with us tonight. Gary is a Methodist minister and founder and director of the Belfast, Ireland-based Rethinking Conflict organization. Gary played an integral role in the Northern Irish peace process and was instrumental in facilitating negotiations with paramilitaries and government officials. He has lectured throughout Europe, South Africa, the Middle East, and the USA, and advises the Biden administration on implementing the Lowry Middle East Partnership for Peace Act of 2020, which focuses on strengthening civil society and developing grassroots peace building in the Israel-Palestinian area, which we are so badly in need of. Welcome, Gary, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay. 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 Thank you, Larry. And thanks, Naveen, for reaching out to me. Colleagues, I'll probably speak maybe about 20, 25 minutes, and then that'll leave us about 30 minutes for a conversation. I'm not going to do a long, uh, protracted overview of the Irish conflict, but I want to contextualize a few things in relation to that before obviously moving on to the Middle East. If we were having this conversation, 30 years ago, early 1990s. Common wisdom of the day, both academically and politically, uh, would have said that there were three main conflicts on planet Earth. There were others, but the, the three big ones were the Northern Irish conflict, South Africa, and the Israeli-Palestinian theater. It's interesting, most commentators were saying apartheid is slowly ending in South Africa, with the Oslo Accords, it seems the Israelis and Palestinians are getting over the line. And looking at the Irish conflict, that was deemed as the world's most intractable conflict. And here we are 30 plus years later, and we're looking at South Africa. And I often say that while apartheid has ended in South Africa, uh, economically, uh, for many people, who are living in townships, it hasn't revolutionized their lives. I mean, crime in South Africa is still at very, very record highs, and there's been some very serious corruption, even within the ANC. I mean, you're well aware that a number of their key people have had to stand down because of corruption. Uh, the Israeli-Palestinian theater, as we know, is just a mess at the moment. And the Northern Ireland peace process, while it's had its difficult moments, I'm not sure that interference is coming from, it's not coming from me, but uh, while our peace process has had some of its difficult moments, it's still seen as one of the most successful peace processes of the last 50 to 60 years. And I often particularly remind people in the United States that it has been one of the best pieces of American foreign policy in the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland or the six counties, we still don't agree uh, on what we call the place growing up in our different traditions. But over a 30 year period, our conflict began really in the late 1960s. 
Historically, I mean, it goes back centuries. Now, we could start tonight's lecture in the 12th century or even in the 16th and 17th century, but just looking at the bit that most of us know, late 60s into the late 90s. Northern Ireland is a very, very tiny space. Um, population during the conflict, 1.5 million people. And during that conflict with 47,000 injuries, uh, 36,000 shootings, 22,000 armed robberies, 30,000 people went through our penal system as political prisoners, with 16,000 bombings and almost 4,000 deaths. Now, I often extrapolate those figures, particularly for uh, audiences or colleagues in the United States, and very simply say, if the Northern Ireland conflict had have taken place in the United States over a 30-year period, you would have had 700,000 dead, 6 million political prisoners, 9 million injuries, 7 million shootings, 3 million bombings. So, I mean, suffice to say, when I'm back home in the island of Ireland, where I spent about six months, more or less, a year, the biggest issue we're still dealing with is dealing with legacy, dealing with the past. And for some time, we'll talk a little bit about memory tonight if we get an opportunity to do that. There's no question about it. I mean, a Good Friday Agreement was described by many, many journalists as a political miracle. And to pay credit to Senator George Mitchell, the American Democratic Senator from Maine, I mean, uh, George Mitchell did an amazing job. He was appointed by Bill Clinton. I mean, I know, I know the story when Bill Clinton uh, rang uh, George Mitchell to say, look, George, I want you to think about possibly chairing a process that could lead up to an agreement in the Northern Irish context. And George Mitchell asked the obvious question, which most of us ask when someone rings us about a job or a project. He said, said to Bill Clinton, Bill, how long do you think this may be? He said, I'm, I'm guessing four months. Well, Clinton was wrong. He was 20 months out. It was two years of long, protracted, torturous negotiations. There are really three strands of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, reform of policing, release of prisoners, and weapons decommissioning. Those are the three main strands. The strand that didn't spill into it was the one I just alluded to a few moments ago, was dealing with the past or legacy. And the jury's still out in that. Some commentators would say, if you had to try to get a process to put that in, Mitchell may never have got people over the line. But suffice to say, the legacy issue is still our outstanding issue. I often remark in the United States that the legacy of slavery is one that the United States, to my mind, you may agree or disagree, we can have that conversation, that the US still has not got the grips with, you know, several, almost several hundred years after the ending of slavery. So George Mitchell actually won serious admiration from across all the political divide within uh, Northern Ireland. And in reality, it was a triumph for patience because on Good Friday, uh, April 1998, we finally got through it. Now, Mitchell had his critics in relation to that. Uh, some critics said, uh, Senator Mitchell, you're giving far too much latitude to participants uh, who were too overfond of their own opinions. But Mitchell, in many ways, I mean, I would have kind of described him as a brilliant diplomat, but I also would have said 
I think he probably would have made a good therapist because he made some really great relationships with many of the protagonists on either side. So when the difficult days came for making those decisions, Mitchell was able to put an arm around him and move him in the right direction. Let me just highlight when we talk about peace processes, there's three types. The first one we would describe as military victory for one side. So let's think Sri Lanka, where there is no negotiated peace process, but what simply happens is the government forces win a victory over the Tamil Tigers and crush the Tamil Tigers. Now, there's no one in a Zoom call can say to me tonight, Gary, I categorically guarantee you the Tamil Tigers will never rise again. I can't see them rising in the next 10 or 20 years, but many times of history, it teaches us any lessons, is that many times the pain or the humiliation is passed from generation to generation to generation. And that was very, very evident within the Irish peace process. So second one is really South Africa. And really what you get there is what I call a kind of colonial model of regime change at the top, but very little difference at the bottom. So I mean, many, many black activists, I had a couple of black activists with me a few years ago from South Africa. So for example, I mean, sexual crime against women in townships, record highs. Sexual crime against LGBTQ in townships, record highs. I have a photograph in my attic that uh, I was in September 1991, I was doing some work in South Africa when I was a lot, lot younger, just kind of getting into this uh, conflict transformation, really facilitating dialogues between black and whites. And I met the uh, Deputy Secretary General of the ANC, uh, Jacob Zuma, uh, who, as many of you know, went on to be expelled because of his corruption. And I kind of smiled at my wife, Joyce, like most of you, I guess you have a pile of photographs up in your attics. But as I often say, it's one you never bring down to your dinner guests and say, here's my photograph with Jacob Zuma. So I say to Joyce, when we eventually die, the kids plunder through our attic. Well, we can say, who's that with my dad? And I'll say from heaven, you don't want to know. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those ones you just kind of park. So in reality, I mean, South Africa, in many ways, corruption-wise, particularly within the ANC, sadly, and hopefully Cyril Ramaphosa will begin to tidy that up. Good Friday Agreement was really what we call a second preference peace process. So what do you mean by that, Gary? Well, what Mitchell tried to do was create a win-win situation for both sides. So no person or no party got everything they wanted. So for example, Sinn Féin, who were the political wing of the IRA, they wanted prisoners released immediately. Then they said, no, we'll do it inside a year. They eventually settled on a two-year process to allow that to happen. Weapons decommissioning was meant to take place inside two years. It didn't happen with the IRA until 2005. And the pro-British groupings didn't decommission their weapons until 2009. In fact, if you, if you Google it, uh, they also volunteer force who were the most lethal uh, non-state actors or terrorist grouping on the pro-British side actually read their weapons decommissioning statement at my church building. That was 11 years after the Good Friday Agreement was signed. So 
in implementing any peace process, there is a real need for what I call sensible flexibility to allow that to happen. So let me just spill a minute to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, maybe just contextualize a little bit of my work in that. Uh, I was in what we call parish ministry, I guess, in that kind of Christian context from 87 right through to 2014. Uh, myself and a Catholic Dominican sister, Noreen Christian, who actually has spent 25 years in the struggle against apartheid. Uh, we set up a center from 92 to 99 really on an interface or a peace line, which are simply uh, Berlin-type walls with segregated Catholics and Protestants in Belfast. They're still there, even 25 years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. From 99 to 2014, I was in another area that's seen a lot of difficulty conflict-wise, and I developed a $30 million uh, post-conflict shared space urban village. So the story of how rethinking conflict came about, people often ask, what's the logic or thinking behind that? I was having coffee with a colleague in the center of Belfast, and he just kind of, as a throwaway comment, that said, you know, Gary, there's a, a professorship there in Duke University you may or may not be interested in. And if you are, would you be interested in, in putting in an expression of interest? Uh, which I didn't, but it kind of unsettled me to a degree the number of colleagues in the United States and in the Palestinian Israeli region and also in the Irish context said, look, for the next 15 years or so until you retire, why don't you try to give this experience away, particularly to a younger generation? So a lot of my life now is kind of skilling up or scaling up those in their 20s, 30s and 40s. So over the last 14 years, I guess now, I've had over a thousand Israelis and Palestinians in Belfast and Dublin. Let me just kind of highlight this. And this is a personal opinion. You can agree or disagree. I think many efforts to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think have failed due to what I would call a kind of flawed methodology in pursuing a peace process. Okay, where the conflict is dealt with as if it was a technical problem that can be resolved by what I call a very selected and exclusive leadership. So naming Oslo. Oslo, as we all know, was a very elitist process, which only a very selected group of people had ownership of and access to. And in reality, I mean, it was bunched almost on Israeli and Palestinian civic society without any preparatory work. And that's not knocking out behind the scenes conversations, but I think a strategy like that personally fails to address a very complex entanglement of grievance, belief, ideology, which really characterize that region's context and which are at the root of the conflict. So what does an inclusive peace process look like? Or what does a societal shift look like? where senior, mid-level political leaders, community leaders, religious leaders, women's groups, civic society, all have a role to play in communicating the need for real difficult action in pursuing peace. And it's interesting when Israelis and Palestinians spend time in Belfast and Dublin, and I'm not saying this, and I just underline this categorically, the Good Friday Agreement is not the template for the Middle East. 
I've heard politicians say that. We obviously were involved in the Good Friday Agreement. I would suggest that the Good Friday Agreement contains lessons that may have applicability within the Middle East. I'm involved in a project at the moment, which is pretty much below the radar. It's a project that's involved at Harvard. And interestingly, and I find this statistic absolutely astounding. We started this about 2020 and researched 356 active conflicts from 1946 to 2018. I mean, it's an astounding number. I mean, I guess if before I was involved in this, if someone had said, you might have named 50 or 60, but definitely not 356. Out of those 356, only 52 were resolved with a comprehensive agreement and where violence did not resurface. That was as of 2018. And so we ended up narrowing it down to a number of conflicts that may have applicability or lessons for the Middle East. Colombia, El Salvador, Liberia, South Africa, the Second Sudanese Civil War, Yugoslavia, and Northern Ireland. Not saying they are identical, but possible lessons. And I often bring Palestinians and Israelis together after they've been in Belfast and in Dublin, and they say to me, tell me, you tell me, what lessons from this small space may have applicability in your region. The first one they say is this. They say, Gary, political leadership is essential to achieving peace. Categorical. I don't mind saying tonight, the chances of Netanyahu and Abbas doing a deal, to my mind, are nil. I just don't think it's going to happen. Full stop. Um, I also think that the generation, particularly in Palestinian society, uh, that the PLO, that leadership, who are in their 70s and 80s, need to move aside. And in fact, if I was leading negotiations from an American perspective or from an Arab League perspective, one of the key conditions I would be putting in a Palestinian authority would be, if you're moving eventually into Gaza, which is being muted a lot, as you guys know at the moment, I'd be saying there has to be a succession plan. And that succession plan needs to take place over a two to three year period. We're a generation in their 30s and 40s and Palestinian society need to take up the reins of leadership. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, I look back at our peace process. Tony Blair was 42, the British prime minister. Bertie Ahern, the Irish prime minister was mid fifties. Clinton was mid fifties. You know, three people who are at the prime of their career were pursuing that. I think that's crucial. So why is political leadership essential to achieving peace? In our space, leaders on all sides, not just one side, sincerely believe that peace was preferable to the status quo. And then the next step is you need to be willing to take risks to achieve peace, while also providing the vision that ensures you maintain the confidence of your grassroots supporters. So very simply put, on all sides of our conflict, British generals were saying, we cannot militarily defeat the IRA. We can't contain them forever. There's no question about that. But defeat is a very, very different concept. The IRA were acknowledging, we're never going to defeat the British army. And the loyalist groupings, non-state actors, were also acknowledging they cannot defeat the IRA. 
We ended up, I guess, in the early 1990s with what we call, and academics call, a mutually hurting stalemate. All sides were hurting, realizing we had the capacity militarily, but also illegal weaponry to carry this conflict on for another 50 years. So leadership had to break that mentality. The second thing that's highlighted is that desire to break the cycle of violence to see a future generations from endless conflict. I mean, that emerged in nationalist Republican communities, unionist loyalist communities, and it actually played a very, very important role in creating an environment for peace. And that desire for a better future encouraged leaders to take risks facing down accusations of betrayal from within their own communities to achieve peace. The third thing that always comes up, and I know this one always comes up, from both Israelis and Palestinians, it says, Gary, you just don't understand. I say, tell me, what do I not understand? We don't trust each other. And I say, well, listen to me. In the late 1980s, when I was a very, very young clergy person, both the British, Irish and the American administrations were aware there were a number of back channels into these groupings who were pursuing political violence. And I was the youngest clergy person in the late 1980s to be part of those conversations. And I often say to them teasingly, I say, hey guys, like, do you think the first time we brought these people into a room, like we were popping bottles of champagne, we were hugging and kissing each other, we hated each other. So I says, both Israelis and Palestinians cannot continue to use this excuse. We don't enter into dialogue because we do not trust each other. I keep saying trust never comes at the start of a process. Process will only allow that dialogue, meaning secretly, making commitments, building confidence through concrete actions. But you can't keep using this excuse, we don't trust each other to not begin a conversation. The fourth lesson they learn is that attempts to resolve the conflict through military force were ultimately futile and in reality did not result in sustainable security for either community. I mean, simply, you heard us, we heard you. I mean, with a phrase I often used to say, I knew as a little boy in the 70s, when I went to bed, if I heard on the radio, three Catholics were shot dead, I knew by the time I'd put my school bag on my back to go to school the next day, uh, three Catholics or Protestants were shot dead. So we had this ability to continue to wound each other. When was security achieved? Security was only achieved when dialogue was prioritized, the root causes of the conflict were addressed, by the establishment of new frameworks and political institutions that gave space for each community to peacefully pursue their visions for Northern Ireland. And the fifth concept I alluded to there earlier, but I'll just tease it out for a moment, the role of grassroots organizations and civic society had a very crucial part to play. I underline that by saying this. I mean, as I sit here at Lisbon in Portugal tonight, the Good Friday Agreement was celebrated 25 years this year. Of those 25 years, 40% of the time, our devolved assembly has not been functioning because of 101 different debates over the security, the Irish language, Brexit. And people often ask me, why have you not gone back to violence? And I simply say this, 
civic society is the social glue that holds our peace process together. I mean, politics is always adversarial. I mean, we know that. It's, that it's by its very nature of politics to be adversarial. So in the Irish peace process, we refer to what we call the political peace process and the social peace process. So the negotiated seven, here's how politicians' minds work. Politicians assume that once the deal is done, societal healing automatically follows. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. The implementation, I mean, the comment that George Mitchell made in April 10th, 1998 was this. He said, you think getting this agreement was difficult, implementing it will be even more difficult. And the implementation has been 25 years and it'll be another 25 years of implementation to finally bear down this peace process. So what is the social peace process? I mean, what does that even mean? Well, it means reconciliation between protagonists, uh, social relationship building across a communal divide, civil society reaper, uh, replacement of brokenness by the development of tolerance and compromise, uh, forms of memory work, memorialization, remembering. So let's not work on the assumption once you kind of sort out problematic politics, that societal healing occurs in almost in an effortless manner. But if you recognize a social peace process, peace process then becomes the ownership of people moving out of conflict, the domain in which they function and are consolidated and widened to include civic society. So a social peace process becomes the responsibility of people who inhabit society at all levels, not just the politicians. So I'll just take a couple more minutes just to mention maybe a, a project I was involved in. We'll give you some uh, insight. Uh, I, I will never, never at my age do another PhD, but I keep saying to younger students at different places, if I was, I would do it on the role of memory and conflict. Because the way we handle memory in all our societies can be absolutely toxic. I mean, whether or not you're a Republican or Democrat on here tonight, to my mind, you could agree or disagree, I don't mind in the slightest, uh, but uh, Make America Great Again was a kind of memory culture, making people go back in time of what America used to look like. So how we use memory can be very healing. It can also be very destructive. And I remember reading an article there in Haritz, which would be a centre-left Israeli newspaper a number of years ago, a colleague of mine at Tel Aviv University had written this article called Inclusive Victimhood versus Competitive Victimhood. And we ended up doing this project, unfortunately, during COVID. It was very, very difficult. Uh, but we brought Israelis and Palestinians together to look at this whole concept of a shared victimhood, uh, primarily using current circle, whom a number of you would know, and just wrestling with this whole concept of memory and how we use memory. I mean, all of us know, look, to be without memory would to be without a world. But many ways we do what I call, we weaponize history against the other person. 
And particularly in our context, one of the biggest issues we're trying to work through is looking at this whole concept of how we still, even 25 years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, actually weaponize history. So one of the keys to Perth Circle, what they have done with both Palestinians and Israelis, uh, they really look at this whole concept. I mean, many academics would now say that science has long proven that storytelling is one of the most effective mechanisms for bringing about healing. Now, storytelling is dangerous, but it really has become a standard element of peace building and reconciliation processes in many contexts. So if you haven't read the uh, Irish writer, uh, Colin McCann, who lives in New York City, he wrote a book called A Pyragon, uh, where a, a Palestinian who lost his daughter uh, to a rubber bullet shot by an Israeli border guard and a Israeli who lost his daughter, 14-year-old daughter, in a suicide bombing in Jerusalem. So just creating those listening circles or humanizing the other. I mean, as one theologian said, quite rightly, dehumanization precedes genocide. This ability to dehumanize another person will precede a genocide. The other thing we wrestled with was linguistic violence in the public space. I mean, as I look at the United States, I do work at Emory University, as many of you know, I also am a consultant to the Carter Center involved in a project with both Republicans and Democrats, asking what is the role of faith actors, both those in the Islamic tradition, the Jewish tradition, and the Christian tradition, reducing what I call linguistic violence in the public space or verbal assassination of the other within the public space. I mean, I'll finish with this and then we can open up for a conversation. There's always three components present when conflict is present, namely land, this land is my land, not your land. Um, identity, my identity is superior to your identity. And religion, my interpretation of the sacred texts are much superior to yours. Now, I know we're not talking about the United States, but all those concepts are currently present in the United States at the moment. And I know prior to your last election between Biden and Trump, both conservative and liberal commentators were doing some serious writing around the possibility of an internal civil war. And I often say to Americans that sometimes don't get what a civil war means, I say this is not Iraq, Afghanistan, it's not Vietnam. It's also not the civil war of northern states versus the southern states. An internal civil war means the person in the next street wants to kill you. And so my concern as I look at the United States is that if you don't handle your political debates, you're going to end up with an internal civil war where someone in the next street simply wants to kill you. So as I've said to many folk within the United States doing work with the Carter Center, you're going to end up with a series of mini Belfasts all over the United States. And so the Carter Center, along with Braver Angels and a number of other institutes, like one of the best things they did this year, which you may have seen, you haven't Google it later. May this year, uh, I couldn't go to the Carter Center because I actually had a group of Israelis, Palestinians and international diplomats with me in Belfast and Dublin. But a couple of other folk from the Irish context went out. And I said to the Carter Center, look, do this with a, a Republican think tank. 
don't just do it on your own. And they twinned with the Baker Center in Houston and Texas. They did three days there, Republicans, Democrats, some of those in the Irish context, and then they flipped down to Houston. But the best thing I think they did, I think, was in August, September, when I was in the US, you probably saw this, uh, that all the presidential think tanks, apart from one, issued a statement saying, what is the role of Democrats and Republicans in saving democracy? And I think the good thing was, and I said to the Carter Center, make sure no Democratic think tank issues this. And it was issued through the Bush Presidential Center, saying exactly the language that I'm assuming most of us in this call believe in, that we handle our differences through non-violence, not through verbal abuse. We can debate as robustly as possible, but we don't handle them through violence. And I just hope that in some way cements what 2024 is going to be. I had an email from a colleague there in Atlanta a couple of days ago asking, but I do some work with a group of people she is working with and how to, as we call it, have uncomfortable conversations, but also disagree well. I often start all my dialogue groups back in Belfast, quoting a New York Times journalist, Brett Stevens, who says, in order to disagree well, you need to understand well. And the problem with American society and with Israeli-Palestinian society, we're a little bit further ahead because we've had a lot of these uncomfortable conversations is we don't want to understand the other person's position. If you don't understand another person's position, you're never going to be able to disagree well. It's impossible. So look, I'll press the pause button there, Larry, and we can begin a conversation for the next 30 minutes or so. Thank you so much, Gary, uh, for those very important insights. Um, I, sh I should just briefly mention that my wife and I are both therapists and we do a fair amount of work with couples in conflict. And from the beginning, emphasize that in order to resolve your conflicts, you have to listen to each other. So let's see, maybe uh, we would welcome com comments and questions uh, from anyone. I'd like to ask Naveen to start us off, though, and I'd like to give Sarah a moment and then Tatiana. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. That was wonderful. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's very interesting to know what components we would need to resolve this conflict. But I would also add to the list you made that currently for the Palestinian conflict, there is no honest broker. There is no one coming in like Mitchell who wants a win-win for both sides. We haven't had that. The Palestinians are always the underdog. The Palestinians are always being asked to compromise. We can you know, go into detail about that, but that is the general sense. That's one thing. The second thing is, the narrative that has been out for you know over 75 years and more about this conflict and the facts and the, the foundations of this conflict the narrative is controlled i feel by israel and, and zionists and thus there's a lot of misinformation and misleading um facts out there that are incorrect. And the last thing, the, the reality on the ground is changing by the minute. As one of our speakers said, you know, 
Palestine is, is going to be this Gaza bit and a little bit of West Bank, which is now Swiss cheese because of settlements. So that is not stopping. So it's very hard, to, like we'd have to pause everything. And so far Israel will not comply with UN resolutions and the rest of it. So I, I just feel that this adds a lot more complexity to this conflict, those three points, and certainly no broker who, who will touch this, who's honest. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I agree, Thurnavine, as regards, I mean, America is seen as being pro-Israel. I mean, now that's where it's seen globally. And I've often said to myself, and I've discussed this with Palestinians and Israelis, if that is where the United States is, we take that as a given. But the United States, and I said to colleagues in D.C. there just a few weeks ago in a Zoom, I says, guys, see when this is all over, do not be sending, and this is no reflection on John Kerry, I says, do not be sending John Kerry for two years in shuttle diplomacy to resolve this conflict, because it isn't going to work. It's just not going to work. Um, so I think there needs to be an international intervention in relation to this. I think the US needs to be at the table. I think the, the EU need to be at the table. And I think the Arab League definitely need to be at the table. I've been putting those three actors into that space from the very, very beginning. As I say, Nadine, no one, no one, None of us are going to email each other tomorrow and say, Gary, after listening to you, I've got the solution. All of us know of some idea of what the possibility is. It is the, the two states, and I'll talk about that in a minute. It's the one state, I'm just finished a major conference in this in Belfast on Friday, or it's the, the two lands, one homeland, or it's confederation, federation. So, I mean, most people have some idea. I think Michael Goodman's, um, you know, shrinking the conflict, mechanism, which some of us thought were a possibility to build up confidence uh, within the Palestinian Authority, is probably now off the table after this war. Uh, I don't think taking, you know, I mean, I, I was article here, Google it later, it's in the Atlantic, I'm just putting it up there, uh, eight steps to shrink the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but if you have eyes like Cyclops, you will see the date is April 2019. That is gone. To my mind, just minuscule steps which could take 10 to 15 years to shrink the conflict. I think now, personally, they're off the table. I think desperate needs need desperate remedies. So I think when this is over, I think you're looking at three possibilities, two lands, one homeland. And again, Google that, there's an organization that looks at this two lands, one homeland, uh, the, a one state solution or two states. People often say, Naveen, as you and I know, because of the Swiss cheese that you have mentioned, is the two-state solution dead? A number uh, say, yes, it is. Some say it isn't. Um, uh, Gilad Shear, who some of you may know, who actually had Zoomed in the Belfast literally a few days ago, along with Dalal Arakid. Uh, interestingly, it's funny how the world goes around because uh, Sayab Arakid and Gilad Shear were great sparring partners in another generation, both two-state solution, but Dalal Arakid, who's a professor at the Arab American University of Ramallah, we were close friends, I lecture there a couple of times a year. Gilad would still argue uh, that a two-state solution is doable in the sense that the settlements around Jerusalem will remain part of Israel. And this sounds like an impossibility, but he still puts it on the table, that you will have to literally evacuate or bring back into Israel 
in behind the green line, 100,000 settlers. That may seem like an impossibility uh, when you think what happened with 8,000 settlers coming out of Gaza. Uh, but he still suggests, and it's worthwhile, I mean, if you go on academic.edu, there's a million and one articles in relation to this, and Gilad's written somewhere around that. I mean, EU, by and large, US and Arab League are still favouring the two-state. I know some academics have written and said it's dead, but at the moment, that is still the thesis of the international community. Uh, one state will mean that, obviously, the Jewish homeland will not exist. It will be a shared space for both Jews, Christians and Muslims. Read around the two lands, one homeland. I mean, I only met a French guy there, a guy, Mordon, uh, an Israeli Jew, very liberal, progressive Jew. And, uh, I mean, that has come more into focus. And, I mean, I'm just... So, I mean, it's still... There's still two states, one homeland, but there's a cross-fertilisation across what we now call uh, the Green Line. So Palestinians can live in Israel, as we call it today, and Israelis can live in what we're determining, either the West Bank, Judea, or Samaria, or Palestine. So those seem to be the three big ones. There's another paper, Naveen, if you email me, by call, which would be an Israeli think tank, really, in London, uh, had a number of Israelis and Palestinians. And again, I get back here to 2016, but they produced probably a 20-page paper. I mean, there's 101 books in this, but if you want something more concise, they lay, lay, actually lay out the four models with the four and against. So for your, your, your colleagues that are in your interfaith group, it's a kind of 20-page read rather than a 400-page read as well. I just think this honestly, and I said this, that, you know, folk and decree, both Democrats and Republicans, you can't leave this. Because if this had gone badly wrong, and it still could, but hopefully it's slightly steadied, you could have ended up with some form of massive regional conflict there, which could have been pulling the US into that, and also pulling Russia into it as well. I mean, I had a young Palestinian friend who'd be nameless, 23-year-old woman, who's been with me in Belfast, and she texts me and said, Gary, are we all going to die? I said, no, you're not. Are we all going to die? Are we all going to die? I said, but I do know this, that once this is over, the world community cannot leave this. And you know, I said, Naveen, I illustrated this to some folk in the States. I said, tiny, tiny Northern Ireland, which now is almost 2 million people because people do want to live here now. There was 1.5 million during the conflict. And we realized we needed third parties to come into our space. Who was in charge of weapons decommissioning? General de Chastelin, a Canadian general. What the hell is a Canadian general coming to here for? Because we couldn't sort it out ourselves. The massive amount of energy from the American administration, from Clinton, the Kennedys, Irish America, both Democrats and Republicans, European Union were involved, Australia were involved. So I said, if we needed that massive international community to deal with this tiny space of Northern Ireland, how much more so does the Israeli-Palestinian theatre need that to happen? And the Arab League do need to step in there. And I mean, I mean, I was just finished an article there. If you Google it, I mean, uh, Thomas Friedman there wrote an article in the New York Times, I think, yesterday, where he has actually spent time in Arab nations, Saudi, UAE, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of energy around that. But as you and I know, uh, post-Christmas, this fades off, people begin to forget. So there needs to be a serious international intervention 
And I mean, I admire America as a nation that has its faults like every other space on planet Earth, but this is not a job for us on their own. Definitely not. We need other people in that space. And if only we need other people in that space to give Palestinians confidence, because if it's seen as being too American driven, they're going to work on the assumption that this is going to be totally Israeli based. So that's why the EU need to be in the space and the Arab League also need to be in that space as well. So those are just some initial thoughts, but uh, flip me an email, I'll put those articles through to you. I think, I mean, the phrase the day after is used continually. Uh, there, there will be a day after, but there's not going to be years and years after. So I think this needs to be picked up very, very quickly after this war comes to an end. Thank you, Gary. Sid, you have a question or comment? Yeah, uh, Gary, I was uh, struck by your comments of, about the narratives, uh, the almost mythological or the divisive narratives that emerge, and also the important role of civil society. Uh, Naveen, a couple of weeks ago, asked me to uh, develop an op-ed for a Cairo uh, English language weekly, which caused me to do some further research uh, around Christians, Muslims, and Jews, Israelis, and Palestinians uh, who have 40-year, 20-year, 10-year histories of working collaboratively uh, to advance peace, to end uh, the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Uh, a very, to my findings, very, very robust civil society who has been uh, working uh, collectively. Uh, Israeli-led uh, organizations such as uh, uh, ex-combatants for peace to uh, Palestinian Christian uh, organizations such as uh, Sabil, but all investing in, in shared Palestinian-Israeli uh, initiatives. Is, is that a basis for some level of optimism that uh, these multiplicity of civil society organizations can be gathered around uh, a peacemaking, a peace-producing process? It's a great question. Let me just expand on that interestingly. I think we were having this conversation five or six years ago. Remember, uh, my wife Joyce and I were, I mean, I've been in the region probably 20 times in the last 10 years. But in reality, seven or eight years ago, I felt civic society was very, very weak. I actually described it, and for those of us who are older on uh, this uh, Zoom call, I mean, I only vaguely remember this as well, but if you remember the Russian rocket Sputnik, if you remember, it was like a big ball, had all this antennae pointing in 101 different directions. That's how I would describe Israeli and Palestinian civic society. There was no joined up approach, there was no cohesion. But you look at groups today, John Linden, Dubliner, uh, who's living in Paris, he heads up the Alliance for Middle East Peace. I mean, the work they did in getting that MEPA funding through and listen, you guys know as well as I do the divisions in Republicans and Democrats. I've spoken to MEPA. Naveen, if you email me tomorrow as well, I spoke to the MEPA committee in Congress, oh, I don't know, October last year. It's a two-hour meeting, but I'll put you through the slot where they asked me to speak in the Irish peace process. And 
just in relation to that, I was underlining civic society. So civic society today is much stronger. A Lancashire Middle East Peace have 120 signed up organisations from civic society, as you mentioned, ex-combatants, um, IPCRI. And I mean, my main partner organisation in Jerusalem is Amal Tikva, uh, co-founded by an Israeli woman and a Palestinian. Uh, very successful organisation. We have an Emerging Young Leaders Programme uh, where we have twin British and Irish in their 20s and 30s with Palestinians and Israelis in their 20s and 30s. We do a two to three month course. They come to Belfast in June. We go there in November. We weren't there this November. We had to cancel it because of the war. But interestingly, I do think this, um, a nameless Israeli university, I'll not tell you who it was, contacted me a month before the war. And they said, Gary, we're thinking of developing a specialist area in conflict transformation. What do you think we should do? And I kind of smiled and said, that's the easiest question I've ever been asked in my life. He says, really? Well, we don't know what it is yet. I says, well, I do straight away. I said, you have now eight months of civic protests against what the right-wing government of Israel is trying to do in destroying your judiciary. So you're any of a catalyster. You need a centre, an academic centre, for the role of civic society leaders and peace building. So, as you say, you really need to empower civic society. And interesting as well, I'm telling a story, so it's definitely Chatham House rules for this one. You didn't hear this one from me. Um, let me go back and get my ideas ready. So let's say November, I'm trying to think how long that previous government lasted, the coalition, whatever it was, let's assume it was November 2021. It didn't, or it may have been May, whenever it was. Someone contacted me, a leading religious figure in Israel. Says, Gary, we're having difficulty putting this uh, coalition together. I said, in what way? He says, the main issue is for someone on the right, they're concerned about Mansur Abbas or the party Ram coming into the coalition because they're Arabs. What's your thoughts? So let me tell you a story. I said, the IRA were the most lethal terrorist organization in Western Europe. But their political wing, Sinn Féin, there was a struggle for the soul of the IRA in the early 1990s. And I said, Clinton was wise enough to know that. And Clinton empowered people like Jerry Adams, whose history is not necessarily clean, but he knew that Adams wanted to move that movement in a political direction. So what the IRA did in the early 1990s, up until early 1990s, hunger strikes, the IRA's main mentality was this. Uh, armed struggle, armed struggle, armed struggle will drive the Brits out of Ireland. They realised this isn't working. So they developed what they call the twin track approach. So they had the uh, Armalite in one hand and the ballot box in the other. So the key for the British, Irish and American administrations and for people like me and others who are working in civic society was how do you push the IRA down the political road? Not dissimilar to what's happened within the PLO. Uh, they, they've kind of ditched the Armalite and moved towards politics. We could talk about corruption, but we'll not go there just at the moment. But by and large, they've embraced politics. So Clinton empowered Jerry Adams. So I said, well, Mansur Abbas is a person of non-violence. If I was an Israeli, I would be empowering Mansur Abbas because Mansur Abbas is able to speak to Arabs that you will never be able to speak to to move this in a different direction. And they... They listened and obviously brought the Arab 
joint list or so or, or ram party into that coalition now let me just put this as a theory to you which i've tested in a couple of people when bennett was prime minister now bennett is a right winger okay who at the moment and i just underline this this is all chatham house rules uh who, who i say at the moment publicly says he doesn't want a two-state solution we often say in our context you have to differentiate between what is said in private and what is said in public i would describe bennett as a right-wing pragmatist and netanyahu as a right-wing egotist who you'll not be able to do a deal with Bennett actually reminds me of one of our right-wingers here, not here because I'm in Portugal, but back in Northern Ireland, that I've had in Israel, Peter Robinson. If you Google him later, he's a right-winger, no question about it, but he's a right-wing pragmatist. And he was able to bring a number of right-wingers into sharing power with Sinn Féin, the enemy. So the other thing within Israeli society, to me, as an outsider looking in, but knowing somebody inside tracks, to bring, you're not going to bring all of the right into this space. You know, you're going to have to shed some, there's no question about that. But there must be some right-wing pragmatists in Israel that realise that this intolerable situation cannot go on. So the other question that needs to be asked is, how do you empower some of those right-wingers to move towards doing a deal? So it's going to be a very delicate dance. There's no question about that. But no, I agree with you. I mean, civic society has grown and grown well there. and there's some brilliant organizations may work another group i work with as a harvard-based group uh, initially it was israelis palestinians palestinians the first neck got it on the neck of the first year they went back because of normalization but to give them credit it's now a third israelis a third palestinians and a third international diplomats 300 of them have been in belfast and dublin they're all in their 30s and 40s so to my mind look Last week, I spoke to two or three Palestinians in their 30s, 40s, early 50s. They would be brilliant leaders in the Palestinian Authority. When is that generation going to get a chance to use their skills? So I am pouring my heart and soul and life into some of those Palestinians um, to ensure that if the circumstances come about, there's people there who are skilled enough to take leadership. And I think that's absolutely crucial. Because many of these people want to do a deal and they're in contact continually with Israelis who think like them on the other side of the Green Line. So how does the international community, Arab League, European Union and the United States empower that generation? The generation that will build a peace. The generation that's at the head of both Palestinian Authority and Israel at the moment, they can't make the peace. And if they can't make the peace, they're not going to build a peace. Thank, thank you. Go ahead. Uh, two hands up. Um, Tatiana first and then Zina. Thank you, Gary, so much for your sharing your knowledge and your expertise. And I think we have a lot to learn from the Northern Ireland case. And thank you for mentioning El Salvador. That's my homeland. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to... Um, I, I found it so insightful to hear you talk about the issue of security because Israel will never be secure unless they are willing to come to the table. And what happened on October 7th is going to keep happening, right? Um, so I think that 
that's so important to keep in mind and, and it gives me a, a little bit of hope, but also everything that you've been saying about the new generation coming up who want peace because this has been a forever war in their lives. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you have any insight into the kinds of activism that is happening in Israel um, by younger generations of Jewish students. Um, we are seeing that here in the United States, you know, there, there's a lot of activism happening on campuses, uh, particularly by Jewish students. And so I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there's growing groups there. I mean, it's an organization I went to, let's just go back. Everything, everything's divided, you know, pre-COVID and post-COVID. Was a pre-COVID, I spoke in organizations. Thousands of these Israelis called, have you seen the horizon lately? And really, it's a group of young activists in their 20s who were saying there must be a better horizon out there that can make a difference. And it's how that's empowered. I mean, I mean, the MEPA funding, I think, is excellent. But I mean, and interestingly, and this will you'll hear this over the next few weeks as well. A lot of it was very economically based. And listen, I believe in economics. There's no question about that. But economics will not resolve a peace process. I'll give you an example. I know when the uh, whole Sinai Desert debate, going back between Egypt and Israel, there was the promise, as you know, of we will economically help Egypt. And I'm not sure what uh, Egyptian politician, Navina Wastri said, unless we get back every grain of sand of the Sinai Desert, there will never be a deal. So economics are important. But unless you deal with the root causes of the conflict, that's why the deal of the century that Dear Donald proposed, economically it was giving stuff to Palestinians, but it wasn't resolving the issue. So that administration was working on the assumption, put another pile of dollars in the Palestinians' pockets and they'll be okay. Well, they'll not be okay. Because you don't deal with the root causes of the conflict. It doesn't matter how many dollars you have in your pocket, you're still going to feel you're being oppressed. So economics are important. I think MEPA and conversations over the last couple of months, they're still acknowledging economics are important, but they're now looking at processes of reconciliation, joint dialogue, more solution-oriented. So in the US, they're going to end up putting a billion dollars into that space over the next number of years. It has to be solution focused. I'll give you an example. So here's a few statistics to bore you with. I told you 1.5 million people in Northern Ireland. The International Fund for Ireland, primarily American based, uh, the European Union, so they put in a billion dollars in the peace process, a billion dollars. European Union put in a billion euro. A number of American philanthropists, Chuck Feeney being a classic example, again, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the peace process. So the statistic there, uh, Tatina, is that for the Israeli peace process of what, nine to 10 million people and another five to seven million people living in Gaza and West Bank, I think each person per head capita, $18. For, what well, I just mentioned, 17 million people. For my space, 1.5 million, $88 was put in. So even the very imbalance in relation to that shows that there needs to be more grassroots. And I'll, I'll tell you, all that money went to grassroots peace-building initiatives. Politicians weren't getting it. It went to people on the ground, women's groups, uh, business groups, academics, religious actors. 
So you've really got to start from the ground up. Google later on, if you're, if you're bored, uh, John Lederach's Peace Building Pyramid. He's this pyramid, and he has this slice in the middle. Uh, so you have the ground, grassroots, then you've got middle, and then you've got top. He would say people in the middle, who are people like me and people like you are on this call. He says people like us are the most effective. Why? Because with access to grassroots, we have also access to leading politicians at the top. So we really need to empower civic society. So we'll take up one final question coming up as uh, midnight is dawning here in Europe and uh, I need to get some sleep, <laughs> so I do. So I'll get that final question, go ahead. Yes, Nina, you have the final question. Hi, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time your insight and experience. I'm doing well, thank you. Sorry for keeping you up so late. <laughs> No, don't worry, my alarm will go to eight. We'll be in the gym by half eight. We're very ritualistic, my wife and I, so don't worry. <laughs> okay, thank you. So I just want to ask you, considering how you briefly mentioned retracting settlements back to the Green Line and yeah. the coalitions paired with recent calls for tribunals regarding the regarding trying to hold Israel accountable, I'm just curious how effective or what kind of role do you think justice and reparations play in the process of healing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to confuse you a bit here in relation to this. An Israeli who was very liberal, so he wasn't a right winger, said, you can either have justice or peace, but you can't have both. Amos Oz, okay. So dealing with the past, so Zina, you probably talk here like, there's like a PhD thesis there, you may want to, you're young enough there to, be able to grapple with some of that. Look at the Irish conflict. The vast majority of people, so the IRA killed, of the 4,000 that died, the IRA killed 60%. And they were designated as a terrorist grouping. Loyalist groupings, who were terrorists, were designated 30%. State forces, i.e. British Army or police, killed 10%. The vast majority, even 25 years later, of those have not been resolved. So the compromise, prisoners were released. Conditionally, it was said that even if a prisoner uh, today was discovered to have killed 20 people and found guilty, they could only serve two years in prison. That's it, full stop. That was part of the compromise. Now, for friends of mine who have lost loved ones, I'll give you an example. So I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you homework to do, okay? So there's a, I think it's PBS or, yes, I think it's PBS at the moment, they're running a series in America called Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland. And basically it's a five-part series, brilliantly. In fact, it, the first one was again by a London film producer, Once Upon a Time in Iraq. So the next one he's done is called Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland. So... It basically it's interviews with people who have lost loved ones. So at the end of it is a guy called Alan McBride, I was with a few weeks ago, with a delegation, interestingly, from North Georgia, who were looking at the legacy of slavery, racism in your space, and sectarianism in my space, both politically and religiously. And Alan McBride said this, I voted for the Good Friday Agreement knowing the person that murdered my wife would be released in prison. And he was. Mm. So looking at justice, how do we define justice? 
there's penal justice where we put people in prison for a hell of a long time and throw away the key there's restorative justice where we try to restore relationships many people in my situation who have lost loved ones would say you know i don't want to stick some guy in their 70s in prison for two years but i do want to know why my brother sister aunt, uncle why why were they killed in the first place so there's a whole way to look at that talk about reparations in your space or in the middle east i mean putting a process together for how that would work is obviously going to be incredibly complex but if it is going to happen it's going to have to have ownership of both those communities and even 25 years later, in my space, we are still wrestling. I mean, the British government in March, let me just get my death, in March this year, basically pressed the pause button, a very conservative British government, and it is the Conservatives are in at the moment, pressed the pause button on it. Most people, Zena, know that they're not going to find out uh, who killed their loved one. From the 70s, in the middle of a bloody civil war, I mean, police were not keeping records. The place was awash with blood. So how does that process look like? Um, is it a South Africa? America can't do a South Africa in relation to slavery. I often say to your colleagues in the States, because the slave owners are all dead. So the TRC, if you look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, people got an amnesty if they said, I murdered this black person or I murdered this white person. And then there was a decision that they got an amnesty. Um, so at the heart of all that within the TRC was that there were horrible crimes, but people, if they would be honest and open, would get an amnesty in relation to that. Rwanda is another example, which, I mean, I was in Jerusalem in September 2016 at a conference, met this gentleman in his 70s called Bishop John, and he chaired that Rwanda reconciliation process, which by honestly, like by any stretch of the human imagination is nearly impossible to get your head around. Where people, where they were more concerned about restorative justice than putting people in prison. So there's a multiplicity there. Listen, look at some, don't do it today. Shoot me an email next week and I'll send you a pile of stuff on dealing with memory and reparations and dealing with the past. But there's a guy there, Zina, who I have often quoted, he's American, New Yorker, and it's called David Reef. And he's written this book, and it is controversial. As soon as you hear the title, it's controversial. The title's called In Praise of Forgetting. So I'll finish with this story, okay? So he is not, so he's, he talks about, an American historian who talks about the terror of remembering versus the terror of forgetting. And he's not talking about what he would call a shameful amnesia. So he's not asking blacks to forget slavery. He's not asking Jews to forget the Holocaust. Not asking Palestinians to forget the Nakba. But he's asking this question, I think. What he calls the weaponization, or I would call the weaponization of history. I'll give you an example. The Balkans is imploding in the early 1990s. And this journalist, this New York journalist was in, was in Yugoslavia. He said, I was in a room with a group of Serbs. Serbian nationalists. He said, I left the room and the Serbian nationalists come running out after me, puts a piece of paper into my hand, some obscurity. 1503, Battle of Constantinople, or the Battle of Kosovo. And he said, 
The Serbian nationalist says, you take away the battle of Kosovo, you take away the soul of the Serbian nation. 600 years later, 600 years later, not 60 days, not 60 years, not 300 years, Serbian nationalists, Orthodox Christians, used the loss of that battle for the genocide of 10,000 Bosnian Muslims. So there's the power of memory. So you think how that story was passed from generation to generation to generation. So when do we draw a line or can we draw a line? And what does drawing a line look like? Or do we just pass the pain seamlessly from generation to generation to generation? So I'm not giving you an answer. I'm giving you something to wrestle with. Because I think where human emotions are involved in this, at times it's very, very difficult to be clinical. But look at some of the, if it's something you're interested in, look at the, look at the TRC, look at Rwanda, Google some stuff in the Irish peace process. What would a legacy process look like in the Middle East? Dealing with memory, dealing with reparations. And what does a legacy process look like more within your, your own space? Uh, I know places like Asheville and North Carolina have moved into some form of reparations. I've also suggested to faith institutions within the United States that I will be creating scholarships, particularly for young black people in the inner city, to allow them to access university. That's a form of reparations. But I'll also say that the chances of the American government, be it Democrats or Republicans, dealing with a legacy process is going to be very, very difficult because of politics in your space. So I would say to all of you, what is the role of an interfaith group like yours? Or what is the role of faith leaders in the public space and dealing, dealing with, with your own legacy within the United States as well? There's a lot in it. I mean, it's a, it's a really interested in that concept of memory, but it's how we weaponize history. And even in Belfast, I'll finish with this here, we still have these numerous wallpapers, Google, YouTube, Belfast murals. There's some very uh, great artists here. But if you go to one side of the fence, and I often say this to the Israeli-Palestinians that are in, everything you see here is true. But all it says is this. This is what we did. This is what the other side did to us, but never what we did to the other side. So there's a TED talk there as well. The danger of the single story or the single narrative. There are two narratives running through the Middle East. There are two narratives running through the Irish context. Uh, and people need to hear those narratives, disagree in those narratives, map out a way forward. But the decision that needs to be made, and we made this thankfully in the early 1990s, we had enough weaponry in this space to kill each other for another 50 to 100 years. But courageous leadership allowed us to move our process forward. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're the age of my kids. My kids' lives are so different from mine. And I think for your generation, both Israelis and Palestinians need to make some hard decisions. Or do you know what? You'll be having these conversations when I'm long dead and many of my other colleagues in the Zoom are dead. You'll be having these conversations when you're in your 50s, 60s and 70s. So look, come back to me. I think I will go and uh, turn lights out and get asleep. <laughs> go from there. And uh, look, look, I wish you well in your conversations as well, everyone, and what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your sharing your experience and your wisdom. I, I wish um, 
I wish the time were different so that uh, you you weren't uh, needing to stay up so late. Um, but I hope there's another chance for us to continue the, these conversations. Very much appreciated. That's super. Listen, I wish you all well and uh, good night and uh, keep in touch. Devine, shoot me an email and I'll get some of those bits and bobs and you can distribute them accordingly there. I will. Thank okay. you very much. Best wishes, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.